Have you ever prayed expecting God to answer only to receive silence? Have you asked God for something expecting that He would answer and be so happy to hear from you and you get nothing? I imagine most of us have been there at some time or other. One of the, one of the downsides, I'll just tell you, of being a pastor is that um, people seem to think that I somehow have this hotline to heaven. That Jesus is on standby to take my call when he might not take somebody else's. Now that sounds a little bit silly, but the downside of that is, it's a downside for me anyway, because I have the same struggles as everyone else. I call up, and I'm sure that the heavenly phone rings, but it kicks the voicemail. And the voicemail is something like this, hello, this is God. Don't forget that if you have the faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Please leave a message. And I suppose, as silly as it is, I want to think that I should have the hotline. He should be standing by. I, I think that too. And then when I don't get picked up on the first ring, I'm every bit as disappointed as anybody. But for me, it presents a little bit, not only a personal hazard, but an occupational hazard. Because when it doesn't happen day after day or month after month, I still have to be a pastor, even if it's tempting just to mail it in. It's tempting to do religious things without expecting very much. To go through the motions while I consider the very motions I go through to be a great privilege. Well, this is exactly the problem that we encounter in the text that we have before us this morning. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is the introduction to um, the birth of Jesus. It's the way that Luke begins to tell us that Jesus is coming. The first part is just his introduction, so I'll begin in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now Luke had set out to tell us about Jesus. And it says in that first paragraph that I didn't read that he sets out to give us an orderly account of of the life of Jesus. In other words, he wants to include only what needs to be included, and he wants to leave out what needs to be left out. He wants it to go in just the right order so that we get it. 
when it comes time to think about Jesus. Now that's important because he begins his story with what appears to be a random priest named Zechariah. Not with Jesus. Now I'm thinking if you want to set an orderly story about Jesus, I don't know, you tell me about Jesus. But he starts out by telling me about Zechariah. Now I want you to file that away because I think he begins with Zechariah for a reason. And again, if anyone should have a hotline to heaven, it would be Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Because not only was he a priest, it was his job to have a hotline to heaven. That's what priests do. They're the ones that go before God on behalf of the people. That was his job. But not only was it his job, the, the text tells us both he and Elizabeth were righteous and walked blamelessly before God and kept his statutes. In other words, there was absolutely no reason God wouldn't pick up for Zechariah. Yet, they had a problem, didn't they? Look at verse 7. Verse 7 tells us the problem. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now this describes his problem. But it lets us know that there are really two problems here. There is the personal problem that's the most obvious and, and actually the first line in the description, but there also is a professional problem. Zechariah has both a personal problem and a professional problem. The, the personal problem is that they are childless. In a world where uh, children represented status, and meaning and blessing from God, they were childless. But it isn't just that they were childless. They were childless and it was too late. They're childless and they're too old. That meant that this priest, this blameless husband and wife, had spent a lifetime of prayers unanswered. A lifetime of ducking out of family conversations with relatives as they talk about their children. A lifetime of month-by-month month disappointment. Until it was too late. He had a personal problem. I, I would say a big personal problem if you're a priest and supposed to be close to God somehow. But Zechariah also had a professional problem. And his professional problem had to do with his priesthood. He is a priest in Herod's temple. Now this temple, and this probably forms a lot of the way you read the Gospels, I imagine, 
He is a priest in Herod's temple. Herod's temple is the second temple. It was built by Ezra and company, uh, it, described in a book that bears his name in the Old Testament. But it was built by Ezra and then refurbished by the pagan Herod as a bone that he wished to throw to the Jews that he was trying to subdue. So he was trying to keep the Jews under wraps and he refurbished the temple in hopes that they would be happy. And so the priests uh, took up their priestly duties in and out and around the temple. And by divisions, they would take two weeks um, taking turns serving at the temple. Zechariah was lucky enough this time that his lot was drawn so that he could go in and serve inside the temple. I can say that here, can't I, that he was lucky enough? Because you know better. Do you know better? You do know better. It's, but it does say, doesn't it, that he was chosen by lot, or by accident, or by a roll of the dice. Hmm. Yet Proverbs 16.33 tells us a lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so for probably the only time in his career, it is his turn to enter the temple and do real priestly work. Specifically, he gets to be the one who lights the incense in the temple. And while he did that, while he lit the incense, a large crowd gathered outside the temple and were praying. <clears throat> and so you're saying, what's the professional crisis? The crisis is this. He's a priest. It's his one chance to go into the temple and do his priestly work, and he finds out that God is not there. He goes into the, into the temple, and God's not at home. You see, he follows all the religious rules. He carefully performs all of his priestly duties. He is a, as professional as he can be, yet it all is empty. Because God is not there. And God is silent. So at home, he's brokenhearted with no child, and at work, God has forgotten him. God's forgotten him and Elizabeth, and she's barren. And so personally, he wonders, what's the use? And now he's happy to have his turn, faithfully doing his job, only to realize it really isn't about God. God has been gone from Israel for some 400 years. The hopes and fears of all the years are weighing heavily on this old priest this night. What a way. What a way to start the story of the birth of Jesus. To say, I want to tell you about Jesus and to start with this broken-hearted priest who's going through religious motions. Well, if you're paying attention, 
you might recognize a familiar melody line that's playing in the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Because if you're paying attention, you can't help but notice that the story of God's redemptive history begins with an old childless couple named Abraham and Sarah. And then that story goes on and God leaves Israel. And He's silent. And now God wants to pick up that melody again. And what does He do? He restarts it with an old childless couple. So that we are reminded then of all of the redemptive history that God has uh, done since Abraham and Sarah. We're reminded of the promise that all the nations of the world will be blessed through Him. And there is, just in the identification of this poor, unfortunate priest, the rumblings of the promise. The promise beginning to stir. It's as though we're in Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas. If you've not read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Christmas time would be a great time for you to read it. Because as the beavers report, Aslan is on the move. They just tell him that, don't they? Aslan's on the move. We don't even know what that means when we read it in the story. But we do notice that the winter is beginning to thaw. No one has seen Aslan yet, but the winter is beginning to thaw. That's what's happening with Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's, there's no notice, no mention of Aslan, but we do get the sense that it's beginning to thaw. The reason we get that sense is because Zechariah and Elizabeth Uh, are in some way a parable of the broader nation of Israel. The fact that God has forgotten them and they are childless points us to the reality that God has apparently forgotten Israel. And Israel is hopeless. And that is the central idea of the text. I want you to to, to notice that what's happening here to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth is also happening to the broader nation of Israel. God has not remembered them. And so they're going through the motions and they're hopeless. And the central idea of this text is that God remembers our pain like He remembered theirs. And God remembers His promise. God remembers our pain and He remembers His promise and people matter to God. This old priest and his wife matter to God. And the promises matter to God as well. Well, we recognize Him doing His priestly work, of course, and then in verse 11 and 12, an angel comes. Okay. Imagine that. An angel comes. What if, what if Lot had chosen somebody else? 
be a completely different start to the story of Jesus, wouldn't it? But it didn't. The law falls on Zechariah. He's in there. The angel comes, and they have a conversation. Let's pick it up in verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many to the children, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And they will and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And that's the speech of the angel. Now, the, the standard things happen here that happen when you see an angel. Because he was troubled. Okay, that, that might put it mildly. But he was troubled. And so the angel says, don't be afraid. The angel gives God's message, and he doesn't quite believe it. All of those things happen most every time you see an angel. And there are consequences to not believing it. The consequence is here that he is struck mute. In other words, he's unable to speak from the time he goes out of the temple until the child's born. And those are more or less standard. There are a couple things that are noteworthy, I think, about this interaction, though. What's noteworthy here is, is how it starts. It tells him not to be afraid, but then it starts by saying, your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been heard. He is an old man. Past the time of praying for children. Yet apparently, he still is praying. It's too late for God to answer this prayer. But he's still praying. And so the angel says, first of all, your prayers have been heard. I think Elizabeth and Zechariah exemplify Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, which says, being steadfast in prayer, continues, uh, continuing steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is a great verse. It's just simple encouragement to Christians to pray all the time. And we're going to use that as the theme verse for uh, prayer uh, effort that we're undertaking in January. We're going to make a concerted endeavor to pray steadfastly, to continue steadfastly. We're going to name it after Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, and call it the C42 Endeavor. You can find it today on the Sunday Hub. If you want to sign up already, you can get all the prayer times you want. There's going to be plenty to go around. Because we're going to, as a church, aim 
or endeavor to pray 1,000 hours in the month of January. So I want to ask for your help and ask if you won't join us to pray because, surprise, surprise, even if it's too late, your prayers have been heard. And that, the remarkable thing about the angel's speech is that he starts out by telling them that even though it looks like their prayer was not heard, it has been heard. The second thing that's remarkable about this interaction with the angel is his promise of joy. You notice that in verse 14? He says, and you will have joy, not just that, and gladness, not just that, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, this is amazing because there hasn't been this much joy in a long, long time. Not for Zechariah, not for Israel. This joy is the opposite of the silence of God. This joy is the opposite of the absence of God that they are currently experiencing. So the angel shows up in the temple while he's lighting the incense and he brings tidings of comfort and joy. The third remarkable thing that we see here uh, in the speech of the angel is, a, is maybe the weirdest. In that, he tells Zechariah that his son is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. What? The spirit and power of Elijah. Okay. That would probably not mean too much to me, or I would just think it's weird. If I heard that from some angel, I'd be very weird if I heard it from an angel, right? But for a priest serving in the temple to hear from God that his son, yet unborn, unconceived even, would come in the spirit of power and life, he would know exactly what that meant. And exactly what that means is that the thaw is beginning. That the promise is rumbling. Because the very last words that anyone has heard from God were these words. Listen to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. One of the things that they were holding on to desperately was, when is Elijah going to come? Because that's the signal that it's about to change. That's a signal that God is about to keep His promise. That God is going to visit His people and change their lives. So what we have here with Zechariah and Elizabeth being the, the featured people and the angel coming is that God's, this is God's way of signaling that you know what? I'm picking it up again. I'm going to answer. I'm going to keep that promise I made to you. The, the, the one that I made with Abraham and Sarah. 
Your signal now is Zachariah and Elizabeth. And this son is going to be the one who will announce the coming of the Messiah. He's going to make straight the way of the Lord. He's going to make a people prepared for the Messiah. It's interesting. It seems to me, reading it with Western eyes, that I could do without John the Baptist, really. He gets thrown in prison and beheaded anyway. But all four Gospels want you to notice that there is a forerunner to Jesus just as He was promised. There's one heralding the way of the Lord coming. And His name is John. Well, that brings us then to uh, the, the main thing, I suppose, the birth of John in the text, verses 57-58. Kind of happens like it's supposed to. Doesn't happen like it might happen to a really old uh, woman, but it happens normally, right? And just like, the, just like the angel promised, all the relatives rejoice at his birth. And of course, no one believed that they would name him anything that wasn't a family name. They expected they'd name him Zechariah. But Elizabeth insisted, no, no, his name's going to be John. And they argued for a while and they asked Zechariah and he got a tablet and he read out John. As soon as he did, he was able to speak. Why John? Why would they pick the name John? For the one who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Well, the, the name John means God is gracious. So even in the name that the angel told him to name the boy, we want to begin to communicate that this God you think is silent is actually gracious. Hang on a little longer. And I love the way that it talks about it. It says, everyone thought about it. And everyone talked about it. It was literally, the text says it was literally the talk of the town. That this old couple had a baby named in John, not after his dad. Something's up. And as things change for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they begin changing for the nation of Israel as well. Because this old barren couple is a parable, you might say. They're a picture of the broader Thing that God is doing in the world. You see, it wasn't just John's name that was significant. Though it is extremely significant, isn't it? That God is gracious. But Elizabeth's name is significant too because it means God is my oath. And it points us to God's oath or His promise or His covenant. And what God is communicating with this little family is that yes, He's gracious, but He's also remembering His promise. He is also keeping His covenant. And so God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper, and even when it looked like He forgot it, He did not. 
And so now that Zechariah can talk after nine months of silence, he, you might say, gets a little too excited and begins to prophesy and sing. Okay, and it tells us what that song entails in verse 67. So take a look there. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. We should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him in all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so here, as though he cannot contain it any longer, Zechariah begins to tell us what we have already seen begin in his life. That what it means that this Old woman has born a child means that God is bringing redemption for His people. That God is, pay, is getting ready to pay a price to bring them back to Himself. Verse 68, For He has visited and redeemed His people. Verse 69 tells us that God is doing this through the Son of David. You recall, even from last week when we talked about David, he's the central figure because David is the one who received the promise that, on, that from his family someone would sit on the throne forever. And here you have now Zechariah recognizing in this house of David, God's raising up a king. And then verse 70 makes it really, really clear that not just the prophecies that Abraham received or that David received, but all the holy prophets. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, God is doing what God promised he would do. He is remembering what it looks like he forgot. And then verse 72 might be my favorite because it tells us that what God is doing is he is showing mercy, promised to our fathers, and He is remembering His holy covenant. He is showing mercy. He, he's treating His people still way better than they deserved. He is keeping the promise to the fathers, and He is remembering His holy covenant. 
So we see here, though this proud father could hardly contain himself, and he, he kind of writes his son into the song and acknowledges that God is in the birth of John. God is gracious, showing grace and mercy to His people. And that His precious wife, Elizabeth, God is my oath. He writes into the song to say God is remembering His oath and His covenant to His people. Then how can we miss verse 77? Because some of this seems like maybe it's a long time ago in a land far away. But verse 77 makes it very clear that it's for us to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. You do realize that the glory of the one promised, what it means most personally and most maybe importantly to you, is that you can live before God now with your sins forgiven. That your relationship with God is not a matter of balancing the good things you do and the bad things you do in hopes that somehow the good things went out because they can't. Because your relationship with God is dependent on perfect righteousness that you can't produce. It's too late for you just like it was too late for Zechariah. Only Only God Himself can forgive those sins. Which He did in the person of Christ, who we would read about if we read the whole story here in Luke, who ultimately went to a cross and died on it to carry your sins so that you might be forgiven. The reality is, the reason it doesn't balance out is because those sins, you've already done those sins. You can't erase them. You can't take them away. You can't get them off of your conscience. The only one that can erase them and take them away is God Himself. And He pledged to do that through the cross of Jesus. And so all of this now in the song of Zechariah is pointing to a a person He's never met yet that we might know that salvation comes through Jesus. But it comes not only through Jesus, it comes to the whole world. That was a promise to Abraham that every nation would be blessed through him. And so now this other old man and woman who were barren, he picks it up and he says in verse 79, to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide their feet into the way of peace. They sit in darkness in the shadow of death. They look around and all they see is what they can see. And he says, you don't need to live in that shadow any longer. Because Jesus came, not only did He die on the cross, He rose again to blow the top off of the box that you live in with the shadow of death. And I imagine that this Christmas you might 
be here and find yourself like Zachariah and Elizabeth, not experiencing what you think constitutes God's blessing on your life. You think that God is silent and that God is distant. But let this rumbling of the promise, let this thawing of the curse that we see here taken up in the person of Zechariah and Elizabeth and then now promised to the world, let that awaken in you the hope that yes, in fact, God is on the move. Yes, in fact, God is doing something through Jesus that matters to you. He does hear your prayers. He does know your pain. And He remembers you. As I mentioned that John's name meant God is gracious and that Elizabeth's name had to do with the covenant. But my favorite name in this story I haven't even talked about yet. The name Zechariah. Zechariah is Hebrew for Yahweh remembers. And I love that the story of Jesus starts with Yahweh remembering. Remembering His people and their pain. Remembering His promise. So what does that mean to you? It means that if God keeps His covenant, keeps His big promises, that you should expect that He will keep His little promises as well. That if you lack peace this Christmas season, and you know that He promised, I've come that they um, might have peace. Peace which the world cannot know or take away. He's going to be good on that. And you can hang on to His promise because He won't forget it. Or the promise of His presence, I will live or leave you or forsake you. And you get in somewhere this next week or somewhere over the holidays and things are a bummer and you're saying, where'd it go? You're going to have to come back to say, you know what? He'll remember His promise. I know He will. Because He's done it before. And that really is what we love about Christmas. That we can count on the fact that God remembers His promise and He remembers His people in their pain. And in all reality, that's what we love about Christmas, I think. That's why Christmas stories capture our attention like they do. Why do we love a Christmas carol. Because Tiny Tim, who was forgotten and lost in the shuffle, is remembered then by a newly changed Scrooge, right? Why do we love Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Because this forgotten, odd little reindeer is remembered in the hour of crisis and saves the day. Why do we love Charlie Brown's Christmas? Because the spirit of Christmas was forgotten until at last Linus reminds us all of the birth of the Christ. Why do we love It's a Wonderful Life? 
because George Bailey is sure that he has been forgotten by God and by his friends. Until in the end they rally to save the savings and loan. And we love the fact that the downtrodden and the broken are remembered. But the thing about those Christmas stories is they all remind us of the greater story. They all remind us that, yes, in fact, they are, they are just mere reflections or refrains of the melody that we hear in the story of Jesus. That a God who looked like He had forgotten His people actually remembered. That God had visited them, beginning with this old barren couple, and now He was changing the world. And so God remembers you. He remembers His promises. And I want to invite you to turn to Him all the way, completely, 100% this morning. And find in Him the forgiveness of your sins and the answer to all your hopes. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank You for... Uh, really this opening to the story of Jesus that confirms again that You intend to save, that You remember our pain and You remember Your promise. And Lord, we are not ever without hope. So would You cause us to hope in Jesus? And I ask this because that's why He came. Amen.